Dave, go again there. Hello, one, two, one, two, one, two. That's broadly all right. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you stop. like. What a stop! Chance for Ben! Oh! Jordan Ben! Yes! Jordan Henderson! I mean, that sort of stuff, we're, it, it's been... We're, be- we're bigger than that. That interview is just like the performance, flat. No. What, what do you want him to do? Just fall at Gabriel's feet crying? I mean, well, he's... Say something. We, we were doing what we'd done for 20 years, relaxing a nervous studio guest in the same way that you would in, in these conditions, um, and thought no more of it. Fire it up, fire it up, when we finally turn it over, make Yes, 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 welcome along the Friday Football Podcast. Adrian here, Dave there. Hi, Dave. Hello. And Nathan over there. Hey, Hi, Nathan. Adrian. How's it going? Good, very good. Good to be back. Sad I missed last week, not really. Yeah, we had record uh, people clicking into us. What's the I, I official terminology? The I checked the figures. All right, that damn it. There was that one. Because <laughs> you, you tried that line when I returned on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. So just go check this out. Damn you, looking for your uh, evidence, your uh, burden of proof there. Uh, it is the Friday Football Podcast. Lots of football to look ahead to this weekend, including um, our live match on Sunday. It's Manchester City against Arsenal, really the big one of the weekend at the Etihad. And uh, Dave will be there at that one. Keith Andrews, Dave. Yep. Yeah. Um, so we will look ahead to that one in a little bit, but lots of other football as well. And uh, our trebles to come as well. My one fell through last weekend. It fell through on Manchester City, surprisingly. As did mine. Well, have you had a treble no. come in yet? None. And I don't think you've gone for treble at odds of more than <laughs> four to one. To it's one. generally about four to one, which it is this week. And everybody always says, ah, four to one. Go on, we'd not be a bit more adventurous than that. Well, no. You should be a bit more adventurous because you're losing money. You need a big win. Yeah. Technically, I'm losing money. Technically, if anyone was to listen and follow your tips every week, they would have lost a lot of money. Um, yeah, so we'll get to the trebles a little bit later on. Uh, David Ginola, lads, to uh, kick the conversation off. I don't know if you've been following this. It really only came to my attention this morning. I don't know if it's been out there before this, but uh, David Ginola has no, linked up with it's pretty new. a fairly high-profile Irish bookmaker to launch his campaign to... Uh, go up against Seb Blatter for the presidency of FIFA. There are some other candidates, needless to say, um, that are also uh, going forward for this. And have as much chance of winning as David Ginola, which is none. Yeah, but I think that they don't really have a chance of winning because of Sepp Blatter's politicking, whereas David Ginola doesn't have a chance of winning because this is essentially a publicity stunt. This is hugely embarrassing for David Ginola, isn't it? Yeah. When I heard about this late last night, I thought, OK, bit left field... Not the type of guy you would expect to go up against Seth Blatter, but maybe he's met a few people, a few influential people at various dinners that he might be at over the last few months, and they've all been saying, we need a change at the top. And eventually Ginola went to them and said, well, what if I was to put my hand up? And they said, yes, we will back you. No, basically he's just getting a quarter of a million quid from this bookmaker. This is what he's being paid. And he's looking for funding of another two million. And also, by the way, isn't that hugely compromising from a corporate point of view that like if he was to go ahead for example and get the FIFA presidency on the back of landing a quarter of a million quid from bookmaker I kind of think that compromises his position before he even begins I mean he talks about democracy and transparency I kind of think bringing a, a brand on board with you I doubt that has that. ever entered the conversation 
what would happen <laughs> how will we be conflicted if I win the election <laughs> Dave you make a fair point <laughs> it's just nonsensical it's, it's, a no, it's a complete non-story it's a publicity stunt they've really upped the ante this time with their publicity stunts it was Nicholas Bentner's underwear at one stage and now it's the FIFA presidency it's going to cost them a little bit more and I think this well it's certainly going to backfire in general he would certainly be the most handsome president in the HIFA, in the history of FIFA. Like we're not suggesting that we the, the world isn't the world of football isn't now crying out for some fresh-faced non-politicking non uh I suppose what we might associate with FIFA over the last while uh, type of person that a fresh face is exactly what's required but I mean one of the stipulations for the gig is that essentially over the last five years you've spent two of them heavily involved in administration of football is, has David Ginola been doing something that we just we're not aware of perhaps we are unaware of it and he's beavering away in his hometown in um, the south of France and he is in, on the administration side of the local under 12s team <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure that's a that's huge football. possibility this is a pol- political role, though, and I, I understand what you're saying. Wouldn't it be great if a white knight came in and who wasn't tarnished by anything po- politics-wise? But it is a political role. You're only going to get there if you play the game to a certain extent. Yeah, I think what we're getting at is the I mean, the, the several allegations of corruption that are currently involved in FIFA. So essentially what I'm saying is it's not the, the politics aspect of it per se. It's more that it will be somebody who isn't in any way, shape or form, which the other candidates are, associated with the current uh, regime of running world football. Well, unfortunately, it suits the majority for the status quo to remain because it's a nice little circle of trust that SEP has around them. And the worst thing about this Davajinola campaign is that actually people are saying, well... <laughs> the circle of trust, by the way. <laughs> the circle of trust is based on a foundation of him uh, making promises I would imagine to various delegates and associations for in return for votes which is not so much the kind of circle of trust we might associate with a Robert De Niro type it's more uh, well with a Robert De Niro in one movie versus Robert De Niro in in another movie I would think well I think the trust is circled if you pardon the pun around the fact that they will get what's being promised if they yeah. deliver the vote but it's not so much they trust, trust as that they will get what they've been told of, they'll get yeah. it's um it's filthy it would be great if somebody actually went in with a serious move and a serious intent to change things up. But as Nathan says, nobody remotely connected to the top wants the status quo to go anywhere. They're happy enough with things as they are. I saw Gary Lineker's name being put out there by a British journalist saying that type of figure, someone who understands the politics and has the profile and has the want to change things. Lineker straight away said, I have no interest in mm. in that side. But see what the British press want is somebody British involved. And what FIFA is, and, is, is not no, far but, away from that. But what FIFA and what all the other countries around the world want, as was proven in the voting for the hosting of the World Cup, is anyone they, other than a anyone British. other than a British person involved. Yeah, and there's also, I mean, like we we uh, we like what we know in many ways as well. You know, like people know, know David Ginola, they know what sort of a style of player he was. He's a pretty clean cut, handsome devil. That it doesn't necessarily need to be a former player. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's because we all know David Ginola, we know the sort of style about him. He carries himself in a decent way. There must be other candidates that aren't the David Ginolas of this world. Yeah, but the great disappointment of football administration of the last decade is Michel Platini. That he was a David Ginola-esque footballer, far better footballer than David Ginola. That he would come in and work on behalf of football. But in fact, he's just another politician. In fact, in some ways crazier than Sepp Blatter. <laughs> 
some of his ideas for the actual footballing side of things. <coughs> Platini reminds me of the guys who he has positioned behind the goals in Champions League games. Utterly useless and a complete and utter waste of time. Your mention of uh, Nicholas Bettner there, by the way, just brought in a horrible image into my head that I'd only for the first time seen today of him sunbathing somewhere with just a bra covering his nether regions. Have you seen this? No. Check out Bleacher Bleacher Report. <laughs> How did you um, see this? I might not. Might check, check out Bleacher Report uh, on Twitter. It's it's pretty horrendous. I won't lie to you. And there was another couple of things I wanted to talk about, but we should get into the football. They're both involved you, Nathan. One of them Snapchatting with an Ireland international this week. <laughs> Are you on Snapchat? No. See, we're all we're all not fourteen-year-old girls. We're all in our thirties. Well, you see, I want to be at the forefront of social media, you know, to help promote off the ball and all things like that. Is Snapchat so at I the joined... forefront of social media? Well, it's it's certainly what 14-year-olds are. 14-year-old girls <laughs> who definitely well, listen fact, to off the ball. It is what 20-something-year-old males are big into. So I just joined it and... Why are 20-something-year-old males I, big I'm not sure why. I don't actually fully... I'm going to... I don't fully understand the benefits of it. But uh, um, Joma, just I for those who Joma don't know it, it, it's just basically you put a photo up and then it automatically deletes itself yeah, or a video. Uh, once the recipient has seen it or watched it. Or yeah. as Nathan received a video. <coughs> I received a video from a, well, now former Irish international whose number I have actually never had a conversation with this person, but I have texted him a couple of times. So clearly I'm in his... Phone book. So I'm also in his phone book, by the so way. So Bernie Slavin is on Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to libel anybody here on the podcast. It's not Bernie Slavin. It's not Bernie Slavin. <laughs> 100% not Bernie Slavin. Lovely guy here. So obviously he just added everybody in his contacts book. Or for some reason, about four, about a week ago, I got a little message saying, oh, you're now friends with this guy on Snapchat. And over the last three days, I've received three separate videos from this player on his way to training, basically singing Bruno Mars' Uptown Funk, going... And doing a video, a six, seven second video of him while driving, doing all the moves and singing along to the song. And due to the nature of Snapchat, I can't watch no. this video. No. Next time it comes, right. next time I get one from him, I won't Don't open watch it, it. Till, yeah, you're, yeah. till you're there. Okay. And then we'll go old school and get somebody else's uh, phone out and video your phone. No, but there are actually apps you can get that save your Snapchats. Yeah. Or you could just take that's a picture where it got of it all on your da- own phone. That's where it got very dangerous. Yeah. Anyway, we must kick on, lads. Uh, as interesting and all this conversation is about the unnamed uh, <laughs> former Ireland international. Well, I'm just wondering where it goes next. We're all we're all hanging out in the limb here to find out. <laughs> we're going to see it as well, by all accounts. Uh, no early game on Saturday, so it's all three o'clock starts here. Well, barring the late game, of course. Uh, so Aston Villa versus Liverpool is a first port of call to take a look at uh, this week. It's at Villa Park. And Liverpool, by all accounts, lads, getting better by the week. Uh, freed from the Stevie G shackles. He's, he's off, so that uh, narrative is now left. The dressing room. Best league form of the season. They have 11 points from 15. Sturridge is coming back at some point. Uh, Lalana and Glenn Johnson could be involved this weekend. We're we starting to see a more settled selection now and can we start to talk seriously about Liverpool as being serious title uh, Champions League contenders? Yes, I think we can talk about them as Champions League contenders. They need to maintain this form. They now have a system. Players know where they're playing, which I think was one of the big problems for the first three, four months of the season that Brendan Rodgers wanted to kind of play the same system as last year but didn't have the players and particularly midfield, you didn't really know where anyone was playing, aside from Gerrard at the base. The Lalana coming in didn't really understand his role. Jordan Henderson's role had slightly changed, and they had no focal point to the attack. Now, at least, he's playing that 3-4-3. Everyone seems quite comfortable in that position, and they're playing well. They've improved. But whether they can go on enough... You still watch them and think, this is a side who are going to let in a lot of goals. 
and without a striker who's going to score 20 goals. Perhaps if Sturridge comes back, until Daniel Sturridge is on the pitch, I'm not going to believe that he's actually back. Mm. And even, and even, that, even then, you yeah. want him to be putting in a run of four or five consecutive games. Look, they're on a very good run. I think it's one defeat in 14 in all competitions, and that goes all the way back to the Basel game. And they are in a position whereby they look settled with guys, as Nathan said, who are feeling that they're going to get a decent run on the team. They went and won at Sunderland without Raheem Sterling. And two months ago, you never would have suggested they would have gone anywhere away from home in the Premier League and come away with a victory. If they win this weekend, it's the first time all season they've won three in a row. And that's just an indication of how difficult it's been for them. But they have tightened up the back considerably. You have to go back to the um, Leicester game for the last time they conceded more than one and that was just an abomination. They were so bad having gone 2-0 up and were actually pretty impressive in going 2-0 up. So Liverpool fans will feel an awful lot better about life at the moment and the question as to whether or not they're Champions League contenders, it's it's really a non-discussion because somehow they're only five points behind United. Mm. When United beat them at Old Trafford in a game that Liverpool could easily have scored five, they were ten behind. So things have turned around dramatically for them and none of the teams around them look... Like they're going to be going on a decent run at the moment. So if he manages to, and Jer sat on the pod last week, if he manages to get them into the top four, it'll be a bigger achievement than finishing second last season. Not only mm. because of the fact that they lost Sturge and Suarez, but because their start of the season was so abysmal. Yeah, couldn't couldn't argue with that. By the way, non-discussions, Dave, are pretty much the staple <laughs> diet yeah. of the Friday Football <laughs> Podcast. So let's continue it. Uh, Barini had a couple of decent chances against Sunderland. Uh, Markovic seems to be showing the possibility maybe that he's a bit of a, a better prospect than perhaps everybody had thought about him up to this point. Well, he had his best game. In, in that he's uh, maybe looking like an actual prospect. Against Sunderland. Yeah, he's improved ever since he came on in that game against Basel, had that 20-minute spell before he was sent off. That seems to have given him the confidence to push on. The problem for a lot of these players, and I have a lot of sympathy for Barini, is that Rodgers clearly doesn't trust him, yet he's throwing him in mm. away to Sunderland and expecting it just to happen. And then the general public will watch him play against Sunderland and as bad as he did play and then just write him off. This guy's not a Premier League player. But as you're, you're right, if you clearly have no confidence in a player, you can't expect him to turn around then when in those rare occasions you do throw him in to turn in a match-winning performance. He's already proven he can do well in the Premier League. He was really effective for Sunderland last season. And not only when he was scoring goals, I think he got seven goals when he was on loan there, but the manner in which he played all over the pitch. I remember mm. the win over Chelsea. He was fantastic that day. He gave the Chelsea back four all the way across the width of the field an awful afternoon. But like <laughs> as you say, no one has any faith in him at Anfield, so mm. he's not going to turn up and shoot the lights out. Strikers need to play games and a consistent run of games and Rodgers hasn't given any of his strikers a consistent run all season same problem with Ricky Lambert who I know he was brought in as a bit part player but that was before Daniel Sturridge became injured but Mm. Rodgers seemed to have this role in his mind that he was going to be a substitute whereas for the last four years five years at Southampton he played every match that's why he scored Lambert. a lot of goals. Yeah, he was into a rhythm. Yeah, it's remarkable. I was watching something during the week. Uh, I, I saw somebody tweeting something during the week. It was a screen grab from Southampton, uh, from some newspapers from this week last year. And it was the time where the former director of football at Southampton was leaving. Cortese. And there was all this, Cortese. And there was a lot of the speculation about uh, Pochettino at that point. And one of the headlines was, Star Lambert set to leave. And like you, I was almost astonished to like that, like Star Lambert, because like at Liverpool, he's not even a bit part player. 
Well, he was a star at Southampton. His goal-scoring record was astonishing. He's one of the highest scorers in the history of the club. Now, granted, a large proportion of those were in League One and then in the Championship because he came all the way up with them. But he was only going to Anfield. What did they pay for him? Six million? Four million, I Four think million. Was the They're only going there because he is a big guy you could throw on up front, lump it up to him with 10 minutes remaining when they weren't winning a game. In the knowledge that Alexis Sanchez or in the belief that there was a chance Alexis Sanchez would be playing up front with Daniel Sturridge. Until he just didn't fancy the city of Liverpool. Neither, which has <laughs> happened. And suddenly you're looking at one of three, Barini Lambert and um, Balotelli, Balotelli yeah. none of which he fancies. So he plays Raheem Sterling up front. So so with, with Barini, right, if, not, not amazing against Sunderland, did have a couple of chances, but in a team without the most creative force in the team at that point. So is this week... Uh, Sterling comes back into it and he keeps with Barini up front or no, put Sterling up front well, if you want to give Barini a chance what you would do is play Barini in the middle and play Sterling and Markovic either side of him but what he's going to do is just go with a direct replacement Sterling in for Barini Barini might actually leave now in this transfer window if Origi comes back and I heard them talking about it on the football show or with uh, John Giles last night where it is doesn't make any sense that we're now in the middle of January and they're still talking about getting Origi back. And paying huge money to get him in early. Six million they have to pay to get him in ahead of the, his agreed contract. And you'd swear they're chasing a guy who was ripped Liga up this season. He's got two goals. Hasn't scored since the middle of October. <laughs> what? I don't know what this Origi business is about. But he, do, he does offer them, would offer them, I guess, a bit more of a focal point. It is the one criticism you would have of Rodgers' management is his man management. The way he seems to pick on players and attempt to isolate them. Same thing happening with Lukas at the moment. A lot of speculation that he might be allowed leave during this transfer window. He has been the key reason that Liverpool have improved over the last few months. That he's playing there, he's playing in that holding role, and he has no real ambition to do anything else. He has a he's history of it, though, doesn't he? He's, he do, same Skirtle, thing happened with Andy Henderson. Carroll, uh, Luis Enrique, yeah. Jose Enrique. He just decides, you know, I don't fancy it. But, and then he has to backtrack a lot of the time, as was the case with Skirtle and Henderson. But and Mignolet. Yeah, who he wanted to get rid of and who've now become actually mm. some of his most important players. Yeah, well, they are up against Villa this weekend. Liverpool... Uh, Liverpool by... could conceivably go out without a back four and still <laughs> get something from yeah. this game. Beaten by Villa, of course, back in September, though. Uh, 11 goals all season! 11 goals all season without a goal in the last four How games! Something's gone wrong with the autocue at this stage, which is not really what you want to happen in the middle of a programme. Yeah, the future president of FIFA there, uh, Gary Lenker, telling us it's time to move on to QPR against Manchester United. Uh, United then, uh, last weekend, obviously we're told um, that they've almost an entirely fully fit squad to choose from that for that uh, Southampton match. So much so that Falcao um, is actually left out of the entire match squad. But they're beaten 1-0, Dizan Tadish with the goal, and United pretty flat. They didn't have a single shot on target in that game, Dave, I think, if I'm right, you were at it. Well, there was only one shot on target in the whole game, and that was Dusan Tadic's right. um, match-winning strike. The narrative surrounding this game has been completely negative towards Manchester United, and I was at the game, and I think it's unfair because they were very solid. They restricted Southampton to one real opportunity, and had Mata taken one or both of his brilliant chances in the last 10 minutes, United would have won the game. But on the flip side... They were utterly devoid of creativity in the first half. We were told that all these players are back, yet there was no sign of Falcao, as you mentioned, no sign of Rafael, no sign of Marcus Rojo. None of those three were on the bench. And whether or not they could all come back this weekend, Shaw was awful before he's taken off. Di Marie was abysmal. Daly Blind was played out of position, and it was only when he was given a little bit of licence to go forward in that left-wing back role later in the game that he has played with Ajax for so many years. He was actually their best attacker, and there were two crosses from him that led to the two chances for Juan Mata. But I wouldn't be focusing 
focusing overly on the game last weekend. Southampton brilliantly organised. United created chances laid on to win it and didn't. What I would focus on is their run over the last six weeks. One win in five. The seven consecutive victories, they're a distant memory at this stage. And we can now look at those seven wins in a slightly different light. Although I think, to be fair, we did mention how poor they were mm. at times in that run of seven wins. Mm. Where they easily could have lost or drawn certainly five of those seven. And maybe this is what Manchester United are about now. They are on the same amount of points as Moyes was. They spent £150 million more. And they're going to a Charlie Austin inspired QPR and suddenly I'm looking at this game and thinking I wouldn't be backing United to win it Well Queen's Park Rangers at home are a completely different team than away from home where they've done literally nothing all season I was at Loftus Road for the Liverpool game and they're really direct the crowd get behind them it's a real tight pitch at Loftus Road and with the way Manchester United are playing you would think it's well suited to Queen's Park Rangers to put it up to them get stuck in Well you saw the difficulty City had there and Liverpool, you commentated mm. on the Liverpool game, which they should have won. They were robbed, what, two goals in the last 90 seconds. Manchester City were in real trouble there and definitely should have lost that game. Charlie Austin could have had three or four that afternoon. They are a completely different team when they're at to throw. They were so bad last weekend against Burnley. But you would expect them to put in a really decent performance this weekend. I guess this is the reason why Van Gaal was such a good pick for Manchester United because even though they are struggling for form... There's no massive sign of improvement. Like, they're not exactly playing flowing football despite all the money they sent. But he's still pretty much immune to any sort of criticism. The stats been out there, level on points, the same amount of points as David Moyes had at this stage last season. But there's no pressure on Van Gaal whatsoever. Yeah. Because he's such a big figure, such an iconic figure in world football. Nobody really questioned him, except for Dave McIntyre, of course. I saw, I heard, yeah, I there heard should have been some questioning of him. I wasn't in last week's press conference because I was um, airport bound. But the last 10 or 15 minutes when Fellaini had been brought on was purely get the ball around the midfield area or back four and lump it straight down the middle. Mm. And that, I think, was a terrible indictment of where they are at the moment. That they lit, were so devoid of ideas that they were all they were hoping for was a knockdown and the hope that someone would get in the end of it. John Giles is a big supporter of Wayne Rooney playing deep playing in this midfield position but with the exception of one or two games I've never really seen him perform to the very top level He the game can pass him by a lot of the time I didn't see the game I was on airport bound as well last Sunday but was Rooney effective at all in that midfield role? Well nobody was to be honest the problem for them was that Southampton had so many men behind the ball for large periods of the game Southampton had all 11 of their players in their own half of the field and they have those three players in front of the back four, Schneidel and Davis and Wanyama, who just sit in together, really compact in front of the back four. And the two strikers work so hard. Graziano Pella, he didn't look like he was interested for the first 20 minutes, but then he okay. kind of livened up and he was really good. So I think that um, an awful lot of what happened last weekend, I don't think when we're talking about United, it should necessarily be focused on that game, but should be focused on the previous five games where they've really struggled. Yeah, well, uh, people do talk about the uh, philosophy of Van Gaal, something that he talks about quite frequently, and it's almost in some ways difficult to get a handle on exactly what that is. They're with this 3-5-2 formation now the fans are giving out about. But even on that, like, Di Maria-Rooney point, which is a pretty straightforward one. So Di Maria plays a little bit more forward than Rooney last weekend. He was brought into the club to be, again, that massively creative force and played pretty averagely, I think, yeah, well, I got the ball to him a few times, but he but just did so, nothing so, with it. So why are they, why why would they not 
started in opposite positions. Oh well, no, Di Maria couldn't play in the position that Rooney has not been playing. Not that deep, in. but maybe a little bit more forward. I mean, I, like my well, central point position, Mata was playing in. Di Maria was playing in his rightful position last weekend. It was pretty much a free role, but if you were to put any sort of a label on him, it would have been as an inside right winger. I thought he, he was just playing come, off he was coming inside. Percy to begin with. Well, he but he was he was starting in that from that position, but he was popping up all over the field. He was getting the ball in the mid central area. He was getting the ball on the wide right and left. The problem with Di Maria was that he was doing nothing. His deliveries were dreadful. He didn't beat a single player in the entire game. 70% of successful passes, I think I read one yeah, stat so about him. I don't think it had anything to do with his positioning last weekend. It was just that he was poor. And now he's coming back from an injury, but you'd still expect more. His corner kicks, for example. Any one of us in the studio at the moment would have <laughs> delivered better corners than he did a week ago. He needs to start producing. But like, I, I think we're immune to figures at this stage. But they paid £60 million pounds yeah. for Angel Di Maria. He's had his moments. He's obviously had his injury problems as well. But for £60 million, pounds, you need to be coming in and being the best player in the league, dominating 75% of matches. You, know, you need to be the top assist maker. You need to, be, you need to do what Alexis well, Sanchez has do done. you need to do what Di Maria does. What he did for the last two years at Real Madrid, where when he got the ball and carried it, he was incredibly good. His deliveries were brilliant and his ability to pick out a pass, like that one he found for Argentina against Germany in the friendly um, a couple of months back. That's what they want from him. It's in there. What is the reason that he's not delivering it? Because he's not playing with Cristiano Ronaldo and everybody looks better when you're playing with Cristiano Ronaldo. There would have been an argument that Cristiano Ronaldo was often made look very good by Angel Di Maria. Now, is it something to do with his environment? Is he not settled there? Does he not have his family with him or friends with him? Is he homesick? Is he lonely? Could be any number of things. But the fact is, no, and notwithstanding the injury time that he spent out, he's he's just not performing. He wasn't too bad against Yeovil, but that was Yeovil. <laughs> the, uh, so the comparisons I made with Moyes, you made them at the start of this uh, piece, Dave, that in terms of the points difference being... They're the same points as... Same points after the same amount of games played this time last so, season. Like, there's definitely a sense, I don't know if I'm just won over by the LVG charm that they're in a much better position. Clearly there are several other better players there as well and reading reports this week, apparently there's another £150 million to splurge over the next few weeks. Is there? Are United in a better... I mean, granted the points are the same, but it's a very simplistic well, they're discussion. Yeah, are they, are that's they, the big that's difference. But, but outside of all that sort of... Are, are they in a better position in terms of their shape and that philosophy... That Van Gaal keeps talking. I mean, we didn't really know what Moy's philosophy necessarily was. He didn't seem to know what it was. Well, you're not we, in a better place outside said, of the we don't, You don't necessarily know what Van Gaal's philosophy is. It's the belief from the manager that is the key difference. United were struggling this time last season. They were seventh. And there was nothing in the voice of David Moyes that suggested he had the ability to turn things around. It was all, we hope to do this and we, we might try that. And defensively, I thought we were okay today when there clearly wouldn't have been. Where Van Gaal, when United play badly, comes out and says, we were poor today. Yeah. We might have won, but we need to improve Our in this area, that area, that area. After the Southampton game, he said, we were very lucky to win at, at St. Mary's. And today, Southampton were very lucky it's to not, leave I here. I think that's great though, isn't it? Well, I, mean, it I don't is, know, I don't know how it watches with the players, but That's the bit of the difference. And players hear that and they go, yeah, well, he's right. And we can move on from that. With Moyes, they never believed him in any way. The other thing that killed Moyes, and Van Aal hasn't had to deal with it, is that both Everton and Liverpool had their best seasons mm. in living memory. Yeah. And for that reason, United and Arsenal were top of the league with about nine weeks remaining in this Premier League season last night, this season. So United's chances of reaching the top four were gone because the I other three clubs that, yeah. were actually brilliant. It's a perfect season. It was a point we made last last week. A perfect season. And it was in the context of Southampton, Coleman, Southampton as well. The perfect season to be in transition. Yes, it is. Because there's outside of the top two, there's nobody that would worry you. 
And something else that has helped Van Gaal is the fact that there's no Rio Ferdinand, there's no Nemanja Vidic, and there's no Patrice Ever. Three huge figures in the dressing room who are clearly undermining David Moyes. Moyes, Moyes did all his dirty work for him. He got <laughs> yeah. rid of them all. But, I, but I'm very, and that was the point, wasn't it? I mean, you don't want to be the man who replaces Alex Ferguson. You want to be the man who replaced... Yeah, we're, as I said there, we're seeing why Van Gaal was the perfect appointment because Manchester, he still... You'd imagine he's sort of infiltrated the boardroom with this idea that Manchester United need him more than he needs mm-hmm. Manchester United. That, that if Van Gaal that, can't get it to there's work, There's a limited time point to that. Yeah. Um, this time belief. next year, if they're still challenging for a champion, they need to be challenging for the title this time next year. Well, if, if they, they if they go, the t- if they haven't qualified for the Champions League, yeah, I, I would agree. If they don't qualify for Champions League, everything can be questioned. Then uh, you mentioned there's uh, Noria Ferdinand there anymore, but uh, he will be in the proximity of United this weekend. Obviously, uh, if they're off to QPR. Uh, suggestions that Harry has one game to save his job as well. By the way, QPR second from bottom, uh, two points from being at the very bottom, and one point from being safe. Uh, Harry says that uh, this week that he's spoken to Tony Fernandez and that he's not mentioned anything about that was the phrase that uh, Harry used uh, about having one game to save his job. I never actually imagined that those, you know, you hear that, oh, he's got, you know, Alan Kirbishley is, you know, t- uh, two games to save his job. I never imagined that they were ever going to be explicit conversations from the chairman to the manager. It was I always unusual that you picked Kirbishley out there. On, well, well, whoever. <laughs> welcome, to, <laughs> welcome to 2004. <laughs> don't lose the point here, lads. Uh, it's um, a media thing, one, one, yeah. one match like, I, I don't ever imagine that Tony Fernandez is going to say to Harry Redknapp, right, Harry, that's it, you've got this United game and that's it. How many times has it been said that Pardew has one match to save his job and he never lost his job yeah. at Newcastle? He, is he the first Newcastle manager in... 20 years to leave on his own terms he must be I mean for one of the uh, I mean outside of the, the the main clubs well I suppose they're sort of bordering on that but I mean generally clubs at the lower divisions don't generally leave of their own volition no unless you're going up in the world yeah, yeah it, it would be like strange from Tony Fernandez when you're playing Manchester United to say yeah. well if you don't win this one mm. you know when they're beaten by Burnley maybe that's when you say Okay, this isn't working. And it out. didn't look good last week with Clint Hill and um, Richard Dunn getting involved with the fans after the game. That looked really ugly. I mean, if you're getting stick because you've lost your eleventh consecutive away game, you deserve to take it and just go back to the changing room. Uh, you see, again, we don't know the like. Richard Dunn is a pretty mild-mannered fellow. I would say I'm not making a defence of him because he's Irish, but uh, look, in you terms are. of like, like not on the pitch. Clearly, he's he is what he is. But like, you rarely see him reacting. Like, who, we don't know what was said essentially. Got but no matter what was said, you don't start giving lip to supporters. You're already in a terrible situation as it is. These are You've the travelling supporters, yeah, the exactly. hardcore. I mean, they've gone from London to Burnley, which is not a nice trip. And you've left with nothing again. Um, so that is uh, QPR United at Loftus Road. This will be the point where we have a little voice to introduce that we're moving on to the next segment. But we've seamlessly moved into another studio there. Or maybe not so seamlessly. We'll have to wait to listen back to it for that. Uh, Swansea City, Chelsea at the Liberty Stadium. So Jose has reintroduced himself to the media today. It was just happening as we were coming in here and I was looking at some uh, tweets from Miguel Delaney who was at the press conference. Obviously, Jose lifting his own ban after being pissed off at his FA charge. Um, or at least that's what we assume why he didn't do his media duties last week. Uh, he does say, now I'm in a position to control myself. Last week I wasn't. I didn't want more trouble. And he says all the decisions are going against them at the minute and that's affecting the results. But he does. Uh, he has no doubt about the honesty of people. So again, hmm. Jose Mourinho is kind of um, making this us versus them situation quite effectively over the last seven days. 
Uh, he knows how to play the game and the media lap it up and laugh mm. at the jokes at the appropriate time and we're willing parts of that, I guess. A lot of patsies, Nathan, is what you're saying. Well, You've I don't think so. just cast on uh, the entire football writers. Uh, you just have to watch a Jose Mourinho press conference. He, but he is. He is quite charming when he's in a press conference and then... He, he know, I do wonder with Premier League managers how much media training they get because Mourinho clearly doesn't just turn up at these press conferences. Even post-match press conferences. I think back to Liverpool-Chelsea, the end of last season. Mourinho comes in afterwards at Anfield after he's got the flu all week. Oh, he doesn't, he doesn't want to be near the team beforehand. He's got the flu. Doesn't want, he's looking ragged before the match in his tracksuit and he turns up into the post-match press conference, sits down, stares straight ahead for the entire 15 minutes, never looks anywhere besides the back of the room. Toward, you know, you know was his answer to pretty much every question. It's a performance, essentially. Essentially, but I wonder how much advice, how much of it is Jose doing this by himself? Or does he have brilliant media people behind him? I would think it's all Jose. It's all in a bid to give a message to somebody. And often it's his players. Or it's the FA, or it's the Premier League, or it's opposition players or opposition managers. I think he's got... I don't think it's just a pantomime for the sake of it with him. I think he actually is trying to engineer something. Now, it's probably all utterly useless. In his own mind, he thinks he's looking to engineer something. But look, he's been successful, hasn't he? And he's a, I think it's good to have him around the Premier League. I can never understand people who are tired of him because I'm tired of a lot of managers in the Premier League. He's not one of them. He talks utter guff sometimes and he annoys you sometimes, but I'd much sooner have that than someone like Steve Bruce, for example, <laughs> who's just... You don't know what he's talking about. Fabregas uh, this week has been reflecting on the 5-3 loss to Tottenham, uh, saying that Spurs only had five shots on target and they scored five goals. And it kind of came across as if it was a sort of a badge of honour. Well, I mean, they only had five shots in goal. And they scored... I mean, it's not a great reflection on uh, this uh, hard man defence, clearly, that Chelsea give off the notion of having. And also an entirely untrue uh, stat. They uh, Tottenham had eight shots on target compared to uh, seven. For it was a freakish result, Chelsea. though. And what makes Chelsea the likely champions is the way they bounced back last weekend against but Newcastle. But, they, but Chelsea never have never had under the previous regime, Jose Mourinho, uh, previous Chelsea never had those freakish results. Really, did they? Maybe my recollection, but it's like one nil, two one. I think it was it was a perfect storm of Chelsea had played the same team far too often in the opening months of the season. We were praising it for them in October. One of the reasons they were leading was because I think seven or eight of their side had started every single game. And I think they ultimately paid the price in that match. They were just a little bit too leggy. And Spurs got on a roll, took their chances. I think when the season's over, Spurs will probably make a DVD of it. Chelsea be the champions. Is that the sort of thing that would sell? We beat the champions 5-3? Yes. This is what Spurs' merchandising store lives off. And West, West Ham made a DVD last season. Did they not have beating Spurs 3-0 twice? Jeez, it's going to be a pretty jam-packed uh, DVD, I would have thought, this season. Dave, your own thoughts on Chelsea's fallibilities or otherwise? Well, there's definite fallibility there. They've only won one of the last five away games and they have shown signs of having a soft underbelly that you would never have mentioned, even just six weeks ago. Um, they're going to the Liberty Stadium, which is one of the toughest places to go in the Premier League, but Boney's are good, just going to be a massive loss for Swansea. Yeah. They're actually in a brilliant run of scoring. They've got a goal in each of the last 11 Premier League games, which is their Swansea. best top-flight run of scoring but those ever goals have no at left the club. Them. Six of those 11 goals, Boney's either scored or created, and he's gone now. And there's talk that um, Gomez is actually a transfer target of yeah. other clubs. He's the yeah. Boney replacement. 
I couldn't imagine they'll lose him and I would think they'll spend some of the money that they've received from Manchester City on a, on a, on a new striker. But this is a... I wouldn't write Swansea off in games like this because they are capable of taking points off any team in the Premier League and because Chelsea have shown real vulnerabilities of late on the road, I think Swansea have a great chance of taking something from this. Yeah, I think maybe with Boney gone, it's going to be a huge blow for this game. But Gomez is such a good replacement. Having seen him Swansea quite a few times this season and seen kind of fleeting appearances for the last 15, 20 minutes, his movement is exceptional. It's better than Boney. He well, Boney is stationary, isn't yeah. he? Whereas Go- Gomez, Gomez seems to get a right. He's seen him far more than I have this season. Is he, is he quick? He's quick, he's big, he's Who would powerful. you liken him to in the Premier League? Ooh. Lukaku, maybe? No, there's more to him, I think, than Lukaku. He'd be more of a, probably going back, a Didier Drogba type type player. Not overly dissimilar to Boney, but just more movement. Always looking for the ball, drops deep, takes the ball, gives it, and is gone again. The game against Liverpool was a prime example when he came on, and he, I watched him four or five times make these wonderful runs in behind the Liverpool defence, and the midfielder never looked up and picked him out. And it just goes to show, he's barely played this season. He's only started three, four Premier League games. Yet, Arsenal have been linked with him. Obviously, Palace are in as well. And we're talking seven and a half million yeah. for a guy who they got for the, free during the summer. The only problem is that he scored once in 17 Premier League games. Yeah, but what I'm saying, once he started, three, four of those. The one goal he got was the, the winner 17, against... I think they're, they're significantly more than... No, maybe... No, well... Five, five of them. Five of them. Five starts. Yeah. So, not yeah. a huge... His one goal was the winner against Arsenal, the header uh, towards... No, he's two goals now, doesn't he? Well, he scored last week. Yeah, he scored last week as well in the FA Cup. All right, my stat is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he's um, gonna, He's got a chance now. Yeah, he I would have had... Him, he's got a chance He now. would have had a greater... Op- I presume they bought him during the summer with this in mind that Boney may well have left towards, towards the end of August. He just hasn't had the chances because Boney's been playing so well and Gary Monk wants to play, play one up front. They have a problem this weekend. They're missing quite a few players in the middle of midfield. Keeson Young is kind of the key player Shelby's for out, the team. Montero's out. Which means Leon Britton is coming in and Leon Britton is a, not the type of player you want in the Premier League anymore. You certainly don't want him up against Emmanuel Matic. Yeah. No, he... Oh, yeah. That, that is the difference between Matic and Leon Britton. Like, people used to rave about Leon Britton in Swansea's first season in charge when Brendan Rodgers was there because he'd have 224 passes and 100% accuracy in every game. Now, not one of those passes went forward or went more than three yards. But you can't... I know we're not going to talk too long for too long on Leon Britton but he is an incredible character oh. he played in with the, with the current equivalent of League 2 yeah he was with for them. Swansea yeah. that's an astonishing rise up the leagues that I can't ever recall a player mm. maybe in that Wimbledon team under Harry Bassett back in the 1980s there would have been a player who was with him from Gary the Monk start. I was just about to say Gary, Gary Monk, Monk himself. Yeah. himself it's incredible and, and I mean huge admiration for him but Matic would just put him in his pocket and Hazard and Fabregas and the rest of those Chelsea players, William, for example, the athleticism he has. Leon Britton did actually leave Swansea during this that period. This is a second spell, yeah. This is, yeah, for about six months, but just that West Wales rain just drew him back. Yeah. Uh, either way, it's a remarkable business by Swansea. Some reports are at 10 million quid for Gomez. Two goals, let's call it two goals in 17 games. He is a palace of one of the clubs. You mentioned a couple of German clubs as well. And he's 29, signed on a free and they might sell him for 10 million quid. I mean, whatever happens over the next little while, Swansea have done some pretty amazing business. They're the best-run club in, I was going to say English football, British mm. football. A big, Hugh Jenkins, every managerial decision he's made has been a good one. You just look at the managers who've come through there and Roberto Martinez and Brendan Rodgers. 
the biggest decision he made, and it was a real ballsy decision to essentially get rid of Michael Laudrup when he thought that Laudrup maybe didn't have the club's best interest at heart anymore, some of the transfer dealings he was a little bit wary of. Michael Laudrup's a huge figure in world football, and to decide this isn't working and put in, what, a 34-year-old at that stage in Gary Monk and trust him. Well, it, it was a gamble. I mean, clearly a gamble. It, it, well, it looks like a gamble from the outside, but... Gary Monk's An been there for gamble, Gary Monk's been there for a decade. Has been with the club since League Two. Hugh Jenkins obviously knows him inside out, and real, saw something in this guy that he saw in Roberto Martinez and saw in Brendan Rodgers as well. And it's brilliant to see because they had a piece on off the ball last night um, about a documentary about the rise through the ranks. But you know, the Liberty Stadium is still one of the best places to go to. Mm-hmm. It is one of the few community clubs left in the Premier League they were marching before Christmas when they were linked with an American billionaire taking over saying we don't want to be taken over we're happy just the way we are Lads very briefly on some of these other matches uh, not at all on Burnley Crystal Palace and Turf Moor not at all on Leicester Stoke City at the King Power Tottenham Sunderland White Hart Lane in the most timely of fashions <laughs> uh, given their opponents this weekend Sunderland have signed Jermaine Defoe today uh, didn't work out at Toronto I was reading a little bit about this uh, earlier on today uh, there were earlier signs in his Toronto career um, uh, that it might actually happen. The club had bought himself and his mother uh, houses in the city. They'd got him a limo to training, to and from training, got him a limo to and from games, which I kind of thought was interesting that he didn't travel with the rest of the team. He was uh, he was going uh, via limo, which seems uh, bizarrely odd. He was injured eventually, wanted to get the surgery done in the UK. The club said, no, you got to do get it done here. And he's gone. Yeah. Well, it is one of the peculiar aspects of the MLS, the way the star players are treated compared to the guys who are on essentially minimum wage. And the way they justify it is, well, the guy minimum wage looks at this guy and then he will say, I want to achieve what he has. So they work all the harder. But you say, if you're turning up in a limo and everyone else is on the <laughs> shitty little bus, I imagine yeah. you're not going... Like they're moon, mooning him out the back of the bus. <laughs> <Yeah. it's> just, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's not a case of, I want to be like him. It's a case of, if I ever turn out like him, yeah. somebody hit me over the head. They're paying him about 80 grand a week. A 32-year-old. He's one of the best finishers in the history of the Premier League. But there was a reason he was a let go by Premier League clubs and went to the MLS. I, I, it looks like Sunderland are putting all of their survival eggs in the Jermaine Defoe basket. I think it's going to come back to haunt them big time. Newcastle-Southampton is a late game on Saturday. It's the second game of the Carver-Stone era. era. Carver-Stone was a thing that hit me earlier on today. I can't believe it's taken until now to get there. Wow. Yeah. You should be working for the tabloids. I'm, I'm surprised beaten, none uh, of them have picked <laughs> that up on that. It's probably been everywhere. Newcastle beaten 2-0 by Chelsea last weekend. Dave, you made a pretty strong case on the podcast last weekend for Newcastle getting relegated I presume the 2-0 defeat by Chelsea only what? well no I um, Nathan's obviously obviously no I said they're the kind of club that could just go into absolute free fall now and win like two or three more games which that might be enough that to keep would probably up. be enough but I watched the highlights of the Chelsea Newcastle game Newcastle were brilliant and should have been at least two goals up by the time Chelsea woke up and actually got themselves into it and they only managed to get themselves into it by the entire Newcastle back four and the goalkeeper turning their backs downing tools as Chelsea took a quick corner mm. but Sissoko was excellent you could see exactly why so many clubs are after him and Remy Cabela was absolutely wonderful he tore holes in both Cahill and Terry more than once and I'm talking just think of a guy beat. you see a guy beating someone on a five-a-side game on AstroTurf on a Wednesday night where it looks like the guy who's backtracking isn't even there Terry and Cahill were just completely embarrassed by him and I wonder is that the beginning of the Remy Cabea era at Newcastle because to do that against Chelsea one of the most vaunted uh, back fours in the Premier League Was dropped 
for that game. Did he play in that game? He came off the bench in that game. Yeah, yeah it was Zuma. Um, it, was, it was Zuma. He didn't actually have a good, get to have a go with Zuma like he did. It was Terry Cahill that basically were done by him most right. often. But if they could do something similar this weekend, Cabela is given the confidence that maybe Pardew didn't have in him. And um, by... Carver Stone, whatever you want to call them, maybe Stone he can Carver. actually have a real oh, imp- Stone Carver. Oh. <laughs> he can have a real impact. But um, so Southampton obvious. are obviously hugely buoyed by what happened last weekend. But I wouldn't. I talking about Newcastle potential relegation contenders. Play like they did in the first forty minutes to Stamford Bridge. No chance. Uh, I discovered the key to Southampton's success this week. There's a great documentary that NBC did on Southampton and their youth system. Uh, you should check it out. I tweeted it yesterday. But um, one of the keys to their success is they pump oxygen into their washing machines, the oxygen kills 99% of all bacteria. So the players just don't get sick. Okay. Which led to a conversation about whether, how often Southampton uh, recycle their training gear. Yes. I reckon you wear your training gear for a couple of weeks, at least. Adrian reckons you get new training gear every single day. I would have me doubts about that now. These are I'd like say even at Old Trafford or the Etihad, you don't have guys wearing brand new kits every day. Well, uh, okay, maybe not every day, but they are certainly not wearing these any more than two or three times. Like, mm. That's an interesting one that we should find out. Yeah, that's exactly um, that was exactly my thought. Let's. I, I've never had this thought before. Let's find that's out. That's a real summer. Um, non-World Cup, non-European Championship football <laughs> Can we drag 20 minutes out of What we should have done is recorded all the nonsensical questions we had throughout the year in the podcast and then put them into one... Oh, that would have been amazing. One uh, little Still show during the summer. We you probably can, aren't going to bother. <laughs> you but, uh, can listen back. I think it was uh, Southampton we were talking about earlier in the year because Southampton also bring all their own quilts and duvets and yes, everything to their yeah, yeah. away hotels for They're the exact hygiene, same reason. Hygiene conscious. They are. Um, they're, it would, they're, you, would, you would wonder... Do they have a history of losing players en masse to illness over the last 10 years that triggered such a turnaround in their uh, hygiene awareness? Uh, right, let's move on. <laughs> West Ham Hull is the first game on Sunday. And then our game, Dave and Keith Andrews at Manchester City against Arsenal. Before we get into the game, lads, a solid story today about supporters groups. I don't know if either of you have seen this. If you pay any attention to my Twitter feed. Which I saw it. I clearly, said, oh, he's going to be on. <laughs> clearly, yeah. on about this clearly don't. Uh, both sides, uh, supporters group from both sides have written to their clubs this week to essentially plead with them to pay what they're describing as a living wage to matchday staff who work at both grounds around around the game. So, like, in many ways, Manchester City give off this vibe of being a community club and, you know, that they're very grounded, they do a lot of charity work. Uh, and I'm, you're not the biggest fan of Vincent Company, but he does actually seem to have some sort of a notion that, you know, they're not just these sort of ivory-towered uh, multi-millionaire players. Um, but both saying that uh, clubs saying that the people they direct directly employ are on seven pounds eighty five an hour. So a study has shown that that is a, the exact amount that a person can expect to have a decent and a, a decent living on essentially and support a family seven eighty five an hour. So there are others who are contracted to both clubs, stewards, catering positions, essentially through external companies who are on the minimum wage, which is six fifty an hour. So nothing illegal about it, clearly, but it is difficult to reconcile the idea of these multi-millionaire players and administration staff at a club and then the clubs paying uh, through external minimum sources wage. Yeah. minimum wage to others. Or is it just the case because they're football clubs, they're in the media spotlight? I'm sure there's people within plenty of companies in Ireland sure who get paid minimum wage are basic and there's guys at the very top who get paid a hell of a lot of money it's just that in but the football campaign, clubs the campaign for this is obviously targeted 
football, primarily because the juxtaposition of multimillionaires, people on minimum wage, and also the profile, so it gets them a lot of exposure. I'm sure that we're targeting the Friday Football Podcast to have some discussion on it. But, but it, was, it was a wise thing for them to do. Yeah, only one Premier League team actually pays the living wage. Chelsea. Yeah. yeah. Which that is rem- They only brought that in last month. Mm. Like, that is remarkable. Like we're talking about, I, I, I was about to say that's a dis, it's a disgrace, but it is a disgrace. It's an well, absolute outrage. But are you trying to hold? Yeah, because you're trying to hold football clubs to a higher standard than regular business. Well, yes. Why? Because they like I, I use the Manchester City example of a club who put themselves out there as somebody who are heavily involved in the community. You are in your bollocks, as uh, the introduction to off the ball might say. You're not even like it's one thirty-five an hour. How many staff are we talking about here? It's well, how many it's are we pennies. talking about? There can't be that many, is my point. It's pennies. It's absolute pittance to a club like Manchester City to at least give off the vibe, even if they don't give a shit about the community. At least give off the vibe. These are the people who are stewards and catering staff of these games. They're local people. Do Manchester City directly employ these people, or do they well, contract it out? No, the, the point is that one that they pay seven eighty five to the ones that they directly employ, which is the decent wage, right? As as it's called, versus some of the people who work for external companies who are paying them six fifty. But that's not good enough for the club to say, well, it's not our problem, it's the external source. Because Chelsea, as you say, albeit only last month, have at least brought in the idea that no matter who it is that's working for them, be a contractor or directly employed, get paid the seven eighty five. I think it's an well, it it's, it's, it's clearly it's, not right. It isn't right. What what can you do? <laughs> you can you can what what can who do? The clubs. Well, what can the people in the world in general do? The fans are trying to do something about <laughs> what it. Can the, the staff. Do? Well, what can we do? Well, the, the, clubs, staff, the clubs need the to staff bring in. Maybe need to rise up and do something about it. Of course, the clubs can change it, but like that's just the way they. Uh, the fact they're penny pinching is embarrassing. Yeah, but it's embarrassing. It's a, it's an absolute outrage, is what it is. I mean, it's an outrage. The, like, they, they but won, is it just an outrage because an it's a football club? Yes. It's yes, but not just because it's a football club who makes millions and millions and millions. But they don't make pounds. millions and millions. Do they not lose money? Well, they pay out millions and millions to so-called I, I, I can guarantee you on the the grand scale of budget in terms of their losses, the one thirty-five in the difference that they would pay, they would make uh, from the savings they make on paying these players isn't going to feature greatly. I think it's an absolute outrage. And like even with Chelsea, even though they brought it in last month, it's going to be twenty seventeen by the time that actually kicks into proper contracts. I think it's a disgrace. <laughs> Look, it's clearly not right. I don't agree with holding football clubs up to a higher standard than regular businesses, though. Well, the point he's making is that clubs are supposed to belong to their fans. They are supposed to be community-based, as well, opposed to the local B&Q, for example. Theoretically, if you want to go down that route, let Manchester City go back to being owned by the fans and let them go back to League Two. Ah, but that's the completely different. <laughs> that's not even the same point. That's a, that's the cynical view. <laughs> ah, it's a completely different point. FC United, by the way, of Manchester are another club who've signed up to this. Clearly owned by the fans. Uh, Hearts as well in Scotland. I just think it's. Uh, ah, it, do- it doesn't make any any sense. I think it's outrageous. I think I think it's more than that. I think it's. You're entitled outrageous. to your outrage, Adrian. And I'm and I shall I shall hold on to that dearly, Dave. And the game itself. Um, you know what the headline now for when he puts this up on Twitter is Murphy and McIntyre against living wage. <laughs> they hate Charlie, <laughs> yeah. and it's not Charlie. Uh, on the game itself, lads, it kind of expected to be just another one of those games where Arsenal get Beaten. fairly horribly exposed, and ultimately, it's we're all surprised that Arsenal are not a title-winning team, which we kind of know over the last few years that just aren't anyway. No, I don't think they'll be horribly exposed. Uh, last Sunday was my first time watching Arsenal at the Emirates this season. All the games previous to that were away from home, and it's a very different Arsenal away from home than last season. 
as I had this argument on air with Kenny Cunningham, they're playing a lot deeper away from home this season. So, so many on, on, on arguments <laughs> with Kenny Cunningham. Nathan, we... the, the point I was trying to make is I don't know if there's any greater defensive organisation amongst Arsenal this season, home or away, but Arsene Wenger's clearly recognised we're getting killed on the counter-attack by the better teams, or by all teams, away from home. So if I just have my two central midfielders and my four defenders playing 10 yards further back, that's not going to happen. Now, they still make mistakes at the back. They still make incredibly stupid mistakes, as we saw in the defeat to Southampton. But I think it takes away the risk of getting absolutely hammered, as they did by Liverpool, as they did by Chelsea, Manchester City last season. So I think they will keep it tight, but you would expect that Manchester City, if Sergio Aguero plays and if he's reasonably fit, they should have enough to beat Arsenal. Yeah, the fitness of Aguero, is, that's important. But the absence of Yaya Torre, I think, is really important because he's the sort of physical player who's just dominated Arsenal in that area of the pitch that's higher up than you would expect an away team to be. But you're right, they have sat back a little further. I hope it's by design rather than by accident that they finally got around to watching the tape of the defeats at Chelsea, at the Etihad, at Anfield and realise that 80% of the goals conceded are virtually identical, certainly in the manner in which they've lost the ball and then get stung. Um, Coquelin's an interesting one because he started the last two games in centre midfield. He brings a little bit of element of physicality and he's Mm. now being preferred to Flamini. And we have that famous... A month ago that he was playing with... Charlton. Yes, he yeah. was. He was on loan. He was in that midfield the day when United beat the May 2 and he was one of the players that Pat Nevin was talking about when he said, some of those players are ruined now. You won't see them again. Mm. So he's he's come back. He's proved Pat wrong there. Now, I haven't seen Coughlin play apart from watching highlights of the games since he's come in, but I'm looking forward to watching him at the weekend. I'm looking forward to watching what position he's in and if there's anyone alongside him or whether he's on his own. Yeah, he was... Well, he was very good against Stoke, but it was it's going to be such a different game. He didn't have a huge amount to do. He was able to just sit there and be kind of anonymous for long periods, did his job, which is sort of what Arsenal need. Just somebody to sit there and not have any great ideas about themselves. Away to Manchester City, Wenger should probably go with Flamini and Coquelin in the middle because he's more than likely going to Flamini go with... Flamini goes Co- for one or the other, right? Just Coquel- and, has, and recently Coquelin over Flamini. on one stay in one game, a couple of games back, played Flamini and Coquelin, but he's... You see, he goes with Oxlade-Chamberlain, and Oxlade-Chamberlain is an exceptional player. He's brilliant to watch. He just drives forward at every opportunity. But that's a huge risk for Arsenal against Manchester City because invariably he's going to lose the ball at certain stages. When he, I would prefer to have Oxlade-Chamberlain further up the pitch, probably as part of that front three with Cazorla, Sanchez, Oxlade-Chamberlain and Giroud up front, and then Flamini and Coquelin. I think that would be a good base. Obviously, they got Ramsey Ozil back fit as well perhaps you could drop Giroud and play Sanchez up front in fact thinking about it I would probably play Sanchez up front because the big problem they've had in those away games playing a little bit deeper is that Sanchez hasn't made any impact in yeah. them at all because he too has been played deeper yeah. so he's picking the ball up inside but his own half but then if you play, play him up front and play Coughlin and Flamini deep there's a bit of a disconnect there if you don't have well, you have to find the right ball. You have to find the right ball to him and it allow him to move from the middle into the channels to receive the ball in the channels and then you're just relying on guys to get up in support of him. But Bellerin came in for Debussy, who's obviously gone now. That's, he's a huge loss to them. It's a second long-term injury this season. Is Bellerin a full-back? Will he be playing full-back this weekend? Did he play in that position when he came on last weekend? Yeah, yeah he played. He pl- um, he's played pretty much all his games this season at, at full-back. And Callum Chambers, by all accounts, is just wrecked, Arsenal was saying, from playing far too many matches earlier in the season. Kenny was raving about Bellerand, that he's the quickest player at Arsenal, quicker than Theo Walcott 
is so very much an attacking fullback. Now, whether he needs to be Wenger just wants get, to take turned. that risk of putting a young guy who loves to get forward because he was playing essentially as a winger for large parts against Stoke. They were three nil up. It's easy to play as a winger at that stage. Whether you want somebody with who doesn't maybe have the experience to know when to go forward and when to stay back against Manchester City, I'm not quite sure. I think I know what you're saying there about. Sanchez and maybe there's a bit of a disconnect but you're away to Manchester City you shouldn't play your normal game no. you need to try something go a for the defeatist option Nathan is what you're saying no, I would say that you're not play Sanchez it. up front bring in Ramsey if he's fit enough is what needs to play Oxlade-Chamberlain Ramsey Cazorla Coquelin and Flamini I think you've got a really solid base then that you can get at Manchester City a Manchester City team without Yaya Toure without Samir Nasri and possibly without Sergio Aguero you broke the news of uh uh, Debushi's collarbone break Nathan I, I did live on air the Arsenal press officer they're great club Arsenal we love our trips to the Emirates get a little tap on my shoulder midway through the match as I'm commentating from the Arsenal press officer I'm thinking uh oh what's going on here so he's he's giving me the old uh, are you talking I'm like clearly I'm on the radio so he just says into my ear pretty much live on air Debushi broken collarbone don't know how long he's out for <laughs> he didn't really have a thick mayo accent though uh, <laughs> Uh, so Ken, Dave, Kenny, Kenny didn't see anything in that incident yeah. at all <laughs> that was an odd one Dave you are going to the Etihad for us you get treated pretty well at the Etihad stadium oh, I would yes, imagine you do they, well, they could do it increasing the size of the press lounge the square footage of the yes. press lounge but uh, the culinary offerings are second really only to the Emirates Stadium and the commentary position is great and there's plenty of space it's easily accessible it's all a in diabetic all, good nightmare <laughs> yeah, I'll be avoiding the dessert cart. Uh, when you're on your way in and tucking into your cocko van, spare a thought for the stewards and the catering staff who provided. <laughs> well, I'll be avoiding food. dessert cart in at one with them. Make sure you make sure you send a few pictures, to Adrian. Here's what you could have had. Uh, Monday's game is Everton against West Brom. Just to wrap up uh, to touch on our trebles. I'm going this week for United to beat QPR, uh, Chelsea to win at Swansea, and Liverpool to win at Villa, which is. Maybe the biggest gamble of all of those, although you've both uh, made a case for Swansea this weekend, all of which comes in just shy of 4-1. to one. By the way, I didn't see uh, last week I fell on City. I don't know if I mentioned that. You did. I think we all, uh, we all fell on City last weekend. Dave, what do you got? I'm going for a 12-1 to one shot. Whoa. Going for three draws. Three have draws you got today. three draws? Has, that is... You're accepting that this is not going to happen, obviously. 12-1 to one is the double, I think. It could be as much as uh, 25 Have to you one. ever going, been successful at one of these? Going no, for but one I haven't been successful and I've gone for teams who are 9-4 <laughs> on either, so what's the point? Uh, I think Villa are going to hold Liverpool to a point and I think Swansea will take a point off Chelsea and I think West Brom will go to Everton and take a point. That is probably one of the maddest predictions I've ever heard. Nathan, what have you got? I'm going for three homes, about five to one. Safe enough, you know, your kind of bet. Uh, West Ham to beat Hull, Manchester City to beat Arsenal and Spurs to beat Sunderland. Spurs to beat Sunderland, interesting and probably likely. Lads, a pleasure as always, thanks a million. Cheers, Adrian. Cheers, Adrian. Cheers, Adrian.